Amen. Love the worship here. You know, they say that the sign of a healthy church is that you hear the babies and the men singing. And you hear babies here, and you hear the men singing. So praise, the, praise God for that. Amen. Amen. We'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to look uh, at what our Lord has to say about divorce. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 31 and 32. The word of the Lord says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have. Lord, in these brief few moments, I pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to your people the words, your very words of life. Lord, may the words that I speak today, God, be the words you have spoken, nothing more, nothing less. May you be glorified in it. As we sung in the song, Lord, with this, you've led us to this passage, Lord. We pray you would use it to glorify your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were wanting to completely dismantle a nation or a culture, how would you do it? Remove God from the government? Yes and amen. Remove children from their parents and indoctrinate them with humanistic Marxist and pure evil ideologies, yes, amen. Remove any and all foundations of absolute truth whatsoever, yes. Remove gender distinctions, yes. Take all these things away and slowly infiltrate the church. Excuse me, take all these things and infiltrate the church with them. That would be a good way to dismantle a nation. Amen, and we're seeing that. While all these things are true and all these things are happening and all these things, we need to be able to speak truth to that. Uh, We need to develop a biblical ethic and apologetic for all of these things. One also major reason for the downfall of our nation and our culture is the attack on the family. And more specifically, the attack on the creation ordinance of marriage. If you wanted to dismantle a nation... Just erase the lines of marriage so that anything goes. Anyone can marry anyone for any reason. And anyone can divorce anyone for any reason. Matter of fact, let's just forget about marriage in general since it's just a man-made idea. Let's just develop and let's just have people co-inhabit it and pretend that they're married. Well, the view of marriage and divorce in our culture, if you haven't noticed, is at an all-time low. Unfortunately, even among evangelical churches. Even among churches. We see the divorce rates at all-time high, and there's not much difference in the Christian evangelical church. Matter of fact, you travel up and down I-77 right in our area, and what signs do you see? Life is short, get a divorce. You seen that sign? They're all over. Life is short. Get a divorce. That's how we treat marriage nowadays, isn't it? Matter of fact, marriage is treated worse than used cars. 
Most people think, I'll drive this for a little bit, see how I like it. If it doesn't work out, I'll just get rid of it and, and get a new one. No harm, no foul. But the ramifications for divorce are far-reaching and have generational, uh, generational effects and devastating effects upon the culture. I venture to guess that everyone in here has been, in some way or another, touched by the divorce. Either you yourself have been divorced or you have divorced another. Your parents may have gone through a divorce or your children may have gone through a divorce. This is the sad reality that we live in the fallen and sinful state of of mankind. It may surprise you to know that the culture during Jesus' day wasn't too far different than ours in regards to marriage and divorce. It came up multiple times during Jesus' ministry. Divorce in Jesus' day was actually quite common, like ours is today. So how should we view divorce in this fallen world? When is it permissible? When is it not? What about remarriage? Well, we're going to seek to answer some of those questions today, but it will be impossible to truly exhaust the topic of divorce in one sitting along with the many different scenarios uh, that come up with divorced parties and application of Scripture and how to navigate those. Here in our text, Jesus addresses the misinterpretation and application of the Pharisaical traditions that were prevalent in Jesus' day. Now, on a side note, the fact that we're even addressing this topic today points to the necessity of verse-by-verse expository preaching. Going through books of the Bible verse-by-verse forces preachers to deal with this difficult text like we're faced today. This is how a church can proclaim the whole counsel of God, as Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. We ought to be proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And just think for a moment the last few sermons that, that I've stood up here and delivered. They, weren't, they didn't come up in my own ideas. It's because we're going verse by verse through uh, the text. Last week, I brought to you the sinfulness of sin or the seriousness of sin. How many churches do you hear messages on the sinfulness of sin. And then before that was on adultery. Before that was on the biblical ethics of marriage. Uh, And within the adultery, we talked about sexual immorality and and, uh, pornographic sex and all types of sexually immoral activities. Uh, And now we're talking about divorce. I venture to say I'm getting myself in all kind of trouble. But that's the beauty of preaching verse by verse through the text, is it not? Because I can't just cherry pick and, and, and pick what topics I want to preach on and just, you know what, that one's a hard topic or you know what, that one's going to be real divisive. A lot of people aren't going to agree with whatever, you know, there's going to be a split. Some people are going to think this. Some people, so I'm just going to avoid that, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with occasional topical preaching, uh, but as we see even examples in the Old Testament that when the law was, was preached, it was preached expositorily. It was, exp- it was preached where it was, it was given the sense, if you read uh, in, in the book of Nehemiah, that, the, that they were given the sense. They were, they were reading the text, they were interpreting the text, and then applying the text, and they weren't skipping texts. 
So how many churches would go through the type of topics that we've gone through uh, in the last few weeks? There's not a whole lot. So let's look at our text again. I'm going to read it. Matthew 5, 31 to 32. Uh, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So I first want to preface this uh, sermon with this, that this week was one of the most intense studies that I've ever had on any text in a very, very long time. I wrestled with this text all week like I've never wrestled with Scripture in my life, and and I'm still wrestling uh, with, with this text. You know, as we said in the Bible study earlier today, because we live in a fallen world and we have sin, we cannot clearly hear from our Father. Adam and Eve could clearly hear the Word of God. We cannot, because of our sin, clearly hear the message from God. That's why it takes hard exegetical work. And many, many people in the Reformed traditions of faith have varied differently when it comes to the topic of divorce. Okay? This is a very difficult topic. And when you're looking at any theological position, you must take the entire counsel of the Word of God. You can't take one part of a text in one instance and formulate a doctrine that then contradicts other portions of Scripture that speak just as clear or more clear to the topic. So there are difficult aspects to the, to, uh, the position of divorce, and there are some things that I just can't hold too dogmatically at this point. And as I mentioned, I, uh, I read many perspectives from many solid, reputable, respected, uh, reformed uh, men and even not reformed men. Uh, and there is not a consensus on some of the varying aspects of, of divorce. And you, matter of fact, you may disagree with where I am on the topic, and, and that's okay. We must all be good Bereans and study to show ourselves approved. Amen. But at the end of the day, I want you to know that I have diligently sought to interpret this text here in Matthew 5 that I believe is consistent with other texts that speak specifically and directly on divorce. And the primary text being in Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 16. But today, I am seeking to focus our text uh, and the topic on Matthew 5. And I want to focus on what Jesus is saying within the context of his sermon on the mount. We will not have time to exhaust the whole topic of divorce or examine all the scenarios that may come up in life. You may may leave with questions, and that's okay. And I may have a follow-up to kind of deal with some of the more intricacies and scenarios that come up and apply the Word of God to them. So that being said, what is Jesus saying here in our text? Well, I want to remind you that we're now in the third illustration that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the third of six illustrations that he's giving to bring out the original intent of the law. Remember back in uh, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so he gives these six illustrations to correct the oral traditions of the rabbis that they had taught throughout the ages. He wasn't abrogating his law. He wasn't making a new law. He wasn't destroying his law. He wasn't improving upon the law of God. He was correcting the oral traditions that the the rabbinic uh, schools of thought had passed down 
uh, during the time of Christ. And this illustration brings out that truth, I think, very clear if we'll take a look. So Jesus here in this, if you look at how he opens, he says, it was said. Again, he's using the verbiage for oral. It was said, not it was written. It was said, but I say to you, is what he says. Now, he quotes here in verse 31, if you have some of your translations, has this all in caps. It's, it's referring to an Old Testament passage. He says, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And he's referencing Deuteronomy 24. But what I'm going to show you here in the text and in Deuteronomy was that he was correcting the rabbinic tradition of the day that came from Rabbi Hillel. Okay. Rabbi Hillel, uh, coincidentally, was the grandfather of Gamaliel, who was Paul's uh, teacher. There was a, a rabbinic school of thought by Hillel that held to divorce uh, in Deuteronomy 24 as basically an open way for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. Okay, we're going to get to that here more. But Jesus is uh, rebuking and correcting this school of thought that was prevalent in his day. And in Matthew 19, in a very similar text, that's why they, they came to Jesus and said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Okay, they were testing him because Jesus knew the school of thought of Hillel that granted the right for a man to divorce his wife for basically any reason. And there was a minority conservative train of thought that basically held to only the act of adultery. Not just sexual immorality, but just Adultery, sexual intercourse with another person. Okay, so the key to unlocking this passage and really unlocking divorce in general is for us to, to be able to accurately interpret Deuteronomy 24, which is what Jesus is referring to, where he says, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And so this is part of, I believe, an overarching principle that we get from the text and that is, because we're fallible, we must examine our own oral traditions against Scripture. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's making them examine the oral traditions against Scripture. And we must do that as well because we are fallible. We must examine our own oral traditions, things that we've always thought to be true because maybe it was just always taught to us. We need to be able to evaluate that against scripture so turn to deuteronomy 24 and let's let's see if we can unpack uh, this passage deuteronomy 24 i'm going to read just the first four verses when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and, become, and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who takes her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. 
So there's a lot there. But I want you to notice that Moses, when writing this, he says in the first verse that, you know, if the wife finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That word indecency in the Hebrew means open shame, or it could also mean nakedness, shameful exposure, or uncleanliness. The idea seems to indicate there's some sort of sexual impurity. Commentators, even in Jesus' day, had a hard time interpreting this passage. During Jesus' day, the prevalent taking of the passage was that men could divorce his wives for any reason. This was the Hillel tradition. This allowed for uh, divorce when the man simply was not pleased with his wife. Was not pleased. If you actually look at writings from the Hillel rabbinic tradition, it gives examples such as if the wife is no longer beautiful to him. Or if he sees someone else that's more fair than his wife, he can divorce his wife. Matter of fact, written in the Hillel tradition, if she talks too loud, he can divorce her, okay? Guys, be, be quiet, okay? <laughs> um, or if she burns his food. That was another reason that a man could divorce his wife. Again, men just look straight, okay? The rabbinic, uh, excuse me, Hillel tradition allowed basically for open divorce if the man was simply not pleased uh, with his wife. And this was held by most. And, and what they did in the oral tradition is they put the emphasis not on the reason for divorce, but they put the emphasis on the procedures for the divorce. They put the emphasis on the certificate of divorce. And they missed the later part or the latter part of the text, which was actually the whole point of the passage. And that is this. If the man divorced his wife and, and the wife marries another and the second husband divorces her or dies, the first husband is forbidden to take her again to be his wife. That was the whole crux and the whole point of the passage was to prohibit remarriage of two parties that were divorced and the one gets remarried, okay? The command and emphasis was not about writing a certificate that was implied in the text. As a matter of fact, if you look at the passage and the way this is worded, it says in verse 1, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, so that verb is not in the imperative, okay? This is very important. This is assumed in the text. Moses is not commanding the Israelites, hey, if you divorce your wife because she finds no favor, then you must write her a certificate of divorce, all right? So I'm going to get real technical, and you English majors probably remember these words, protasis and apodosis, okay? Does anybody recognize those terms? I want to see who's an English uh, major, no one. Okay, so the protasis is the if statement. If these conditions are made, met, then the apodosis is the then clause. Okay, verses one through three is the if. Verse four is the then, meaning the if is if a husband divorces his wife, writes a certificate of divorce, sends her away, and she remarries, then his her new husband dies or sends her away, 
then you're not allowed to take her to be your wife again. That was the command that the oral traditional teaching of the rabbis missed. They were so focused on the commands, they thought, as long as I write her a certificate of divorce, I can divorce her. Now, this is mirrored in Jeremiah 1.3, or maybe, excuse me, 3.1, uh, that if you look, I have it written down here. If you look at Jeremiah 3.1, it says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not the land be completely polluted? You are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. So this is, is saying the exact same thing that is what Moses is prohibiting. Uh, he's prohibiting the remarriage of the divorced parties. And so what are we to make of this? Well, it's very interesting. Let's go back to Matthew 4 and look at the text here. Where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give a certificate of divorce. Here's how you know that Jesus is rebuking their rabbinic teaching. Because in the Greek here, the verb to give, it's in the imperative, meaning it is a command. So Jesus is saying, you heard that it was said, whoever sends his, way, sends his wife away, he must give her a certificate of divorce, period. That's in the imperative. Jesus is, uh, the word in the Greek here is in the imperative. You following me? And in the Hebrew, in Deuteronomy 24, that verb writing a divorce is not an imperative. It's not given as a command. It's in the passive. It's, it's assumed. And the Greek Septuagint, which was the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used in Jesus' time, that Greek word that was translated from Hebrew in Deuteronomy 24 is also not in the imperative. What am I saying? That it never was meant to be a focus on the command of writing a divorce. It's a conditional statement. The command was that the, there's a prohibiting the remarriage of the divorced parties. I hope y'all are following me on that because it shows that Jesus is correcting this oral tradition. You heard that it was said. Essentially, he's saying, you heard that it was said that it's okay to divorce your wife for basically any reason so long as you write her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who, anyone who divorces his wife, except for unchastity, makes her to commit adultery. Jesus corrects the rabbinic misinterpretation and application of the law and thus is reestablishing, reaffirming the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 24, he's reaffirming Deuteronomy 24. He's not, uh, he's not making up something new. He's just reaffirming what was meant from the beginning. By stating the sole reason for divorce is unchastity, sexual immorality, or fornication that's been translated. And this is 100% consistent with the original intention of Deuteronomy 24. And so here's the problem, brothers and sisters. The Pharisees held to their oral traditions, making the word of God none effect. They were so focused on the writing of the divorce, they, they missed the, the rest of the passage, and they missed the whole beauty and sanctity of marriage in and of itself. 
So the, like the overarching principle is that we must too be able to evaluate the oral teachings or traditions that we hold near and dear to us. And we must hold it up and against the very words of God. I mean, those of you that have been Christians for a while, can you look back and think, oh man, I believe those things because maybe it was just, it was taught over the years or ingrained as me as a child. But when I really studied the scripture out, wow, that was totally wrong. So if you can look back and see that you were wrong in some things, how come you can be so sure that there's not something now that you're holding on to that's a tradition of man uh, that is over and against the words of God? So we must be able to be willing and open to challenge our own presuppositions and to evaluate all of our oral teachings and traditions against the word of God. Now here's the next point I want to make, is that divorce was regulated for unbelievers in a fallen world, and because of this, Christians should focus less on when divorce is permissible and focus more on on fulfilling their marriage covenant. I'm going to repeat that because I'm going to unpack that. Divorce was regulated for unbelievers in a fallen world, and so Christians should focus less on when divorce is permissible, focus more on fulfilling their marriage covenant. The Pharisees were consumed, friends. They were consumed with knowing when it was lawful for them to divorce. The Jews were so focused on the intricacies of divorce that they ignored the beauty in the, of the marriage covenant, which was begun at creation. They were focused on the when, the where, and the how they could divorce. Many of us are like that today, aren't we? Many think in the Christian church, how bad does it really have to get for me to be okay with calling this marriage over. Maybe you have thought that. Maybe you have thought, how bad does this relationship have to be for me to have a clear conscience to be able to divorce my spouse? Instead, brothers and sisters, if you claim Christ as your own, we ought to be focusing on the blessing of marriage and how to do the hard work to glorify God in your marriage. Within the confines of a Christian marriage, listen to me, within the confines of a Christian marriage, two born-again believers in Christ, divorce should never be an option. Now, some may object to that. And there are cases where it turns out that one is actually not a believer. Okay, I'm not talking about uh, false converts. I'm talking about two born-again Christians walking in obedience to God. Divorce should never be an option. Now, I think we probably all have had scenarios and know people where there were two supposedly Christians, and then one did something crazy, like went out and started to prostitute themselves around, or, or one was abusive, right? But it turns out, friends, that, that one was probably not a Christian, because let me tell you, a Christian who falls into sin, say sin of adultery, that Christian is going to come to repentance, right? And that Christian is going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? And friends, is adultery the unforgivable sin? No. So that other spouse who is a believer 
is going to forgive their spouse for doing that. And just because there's grounds for something, as we see in the text, it doesn't mean that you're commanded to do it. You get what I'm saying? Okay? So adultery is not the unpardonable sin. So within the confines of a Christian marriage, the husband and the wife should never have a divorce as an option on the table. I can't remember who said this, but I, I, I steal it. Uh, I think it was Vody Bauckham, but he said to his wife that if she ever left, he's going with her. You know, that's kind of how I feel with my wife. If she ever left, I'm going with her. Uh, divorce was never and never has been an option in my mind. I set out from the beginning, learning God's word, that I would, I would never, ever consider divorce, no matter what my wife did or didn't do. And isn't that how Christ treats us? as his church. I'm getting way ahead of my notes, but it's just good timing for that. Does Christ ever think, well, this child of mine who I bought with my blood upon the cross, if they, if they do this, it's okay, but if they cross this line and commit this grave sin against me, then you know what? I'm done with them. No, Christ says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He will not leave you if you're in Christ. And so that ought to be our mentality if we have two Christians that are walking in in obedience to the law of God. We should, have this, uh, we should have this mentality within the confines of a Christian marriage. So the point is, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't focus like the Jews did on the permissibility of divorce. And they actually came to Jesus in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. They came and asked them when it was lawful for them to divorce. They were so in, 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 enamored with knowing, when can I leave my wife? When is it okay to... Uh, to divorce her. And as I mentioned in, in, Mark, in Matthew 19, they say in verse 3, the Pharisees, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And what's Jesus' answer? Verse 4, he answered them and said, have you not read? This is a rebuke. They should know the word of God. They should know the law of Moses. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, what's it say? Let no man separate. So Jesus doesn't go immediately to Deuteronomy 24 when they ask, hey, is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? No, he goes to Genesis 2. And rebukes them like you should have looked beyond Deuteronomy 24 and looked at Genesis 2. And so they go, whoa, whoa, Jesus, what about Moses? Look what they said. Why did he, why did Moses command? There it is. Remember, they misinterpreted scripture. They thought the commandment was on the certificate of divorce. Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted permitted, it's a different word in the Greek, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. From the beginning, what? Before man fell into sin. From the beginning, divorce was never permissible because sin had not yet entered into the world. God made it permissible because of the hardness of heart of man and then regulated divorce, but from the beginning, it was not this way. The key words in this passage, let no man separate. From the beginning, 
It, is not, it was not this way. Now, one key point to this text is when Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted divorce. This word hardness of heart was not something that was isolated to the Jews in the time of Moses. So many people see that and say, oh, that's because the Jews, they were hard and they kept rejecting God. Uh, but this word in the Greek is used for uh, much more. It's a, it's a word that's used for outward rebellion and hardness of heart towards God. So this was not something that was isolated to the Jews, but this speaks to all of mankind's sinful state. And that's why Moses permitted divorce in the law of God because of the hardness of heart of mankind in general. But those of us that are in the new covenant, those that are bought by Christ, those that have a regenerated heart, we have a new heart, don't we? We don't have a hardness of heart. We don't have a stony heart. It's been changed by God to a heart of flesh. This is why I believe that two believers that are walking in a marriage covenant before God as Christ as their Savior with the Holy Spirit have no need of divorce because Jesus says it was not this way from the beginning. Just because divorce is permissible, it does not mean it's mandatory. And a true believer who fails their marriage covenant by not being faithful, as I said, will have godly sorrow leading to repentance while bearing fruit. This would not be easy. No one said it would ever be easy. Okay? But it's possible with Christ at the center. It's possible to forgive a spouse who has done such horrendous thing. But if they're repentant, they're in Christ and they're bearing fruit, it's not impossible. Okay, it's hard, but it's possible. And we need to be able to view that, that divorce was never intended from the beginning. Third point I want to make is this, that because Jesus upholds the law by giving the sole grounds for divorce, therefore, we must seek to fulfill our marriage covenant. Now listen again, because Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus upholds the law by giving the sole grounds for divorce, and because of that, those of us married must seek to fulfill our marriage covenant. So Jesus here in our text gives us the sole grounds of divorce. He says, except for unchastity. Verse 32, or your version might say fornication or immorality. Now, it's important to note that Jesus does not use the common term for adultery as the sole grounds for divorce. That word is used earlier in the text here in verse 27, thou shalt not commit adultery. That word in the Greek is literally sleeping with another person's wife or another man's wife. It's sexual intercourse outside the confines of marriage. Jesus doesn't use that word adultery here. He uses porneia which is translated immorality, unchastity. And listen, pernea is not synonymous with adultery. Pernea is defined as illicit sexual activity. It could be intercourse, but it could cover a lot more sexual sins that don't involve sexual intercourse. And it's used in Scripture even for things that are more broader than sexual sins. This word pernea and its counterparts in the Hebrew is used for apostasy, 
idolatry, or even religious unfaithfulness. So pernea does not assume adultery, i.e. sexual intercourse. Jesus uses pernea distinctly from adultery in passages like Matthew 15, 19 and Mark 7, 21, where he says in the Matthew passage, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, comma, adulteries, comma, fornications, which is pornea. So he uses them distinct in other passages. Same thing in Mark 7, verse 21. So in our text, Matthew 5, and in Matthew 19, Jesus gives the sole grounds for divorce and does not use the word adultery. The word for adultery that he does use earlier in the text is the noun form of the word that's used throughout the entire New Testament for adultery. Everywhere where you see adultery, either in the noun form or the verb form, is what Jesus does not use here in Matthew chapter 5, but he uses porneia. So porneia is used for a broad range, as I mentioned, sexual sins and symbolic for other sins. And because it is an umbrella, so to speak, our task now as good stewards of the word of God is to determine what within the definition and usage of porneia allows for divorce. Y'all tracking with me? We have to determine when Jesus says that the only grounds for divorce <clears throat> is by means of porneia, unchastity. Now we have to determine what within that confines uh, allows for divorce. So it's helpful at this point to look at the marriage covenant itself and examine the covenantal duties uh, that husbands and wives owe each other. And then we can take those, those covenantal duties, we can take the, the porneia uh, that Jesus says is the only grounds for divorce, and we can combine them to see what grounds for divorce, what porneia is inclusive uh, that Jesus is speaking to here. Okay. Now, when I read Matthew 19... Uh, Jesus quotes Genesis 2 and, and, and gives the marriage covenant. And there's three things here in the passage from Genesis 2 that give us the covenantal duties within a marriage. Three things, okay? Number one is leaving. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. This is part of the marriage covenant. Husbands and wives are to leave their familial life, their society that they had in their former family, okay, and they are to leave that behind and be united to their spouse. They are to leave in a physical sense, yes, although sometimes they would live under the same roof, and that, that's, a, that's fine. It's not, I mean, you got to go, physically go away, but physically leaving, mentally and spiritually leaving their society they had in their former family, their mother and their father, and be united to their spouse, so if a spouse were to then physically desert his or, her his or her spouse later, then they have broken their covenantal duties because they have not come together and be joined with their wife. And Paul addresses this here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. He says, if the unbelieving one leaves desertion, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases but God has called us to peace. 
So how do, we, how do we make sense of this when Jesus says the only reason for divorce is for reasons of porneia or unchastity, immorality? And he says that's the only reason, okay? So some commentators say, yeah, he says that, but then Paul also says desertion. So we have to add that too. But if Jesus says only this, then are we pitting Paul against Jesus? Or could it be that because Porneia is used symbolic for other things like apostasy, that within the definition of porneia, it includes this desertion, which Paul clarifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's what I would hold to. Okay, I don't think Paul is pitted against Christ, and we have to try to make that distinction. Desertion must be taken, uh, in my view, as inclusive in Jesus' usage of porneia, and this breaks the marriage covenant that is in Genesis 2, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Uh, We see actually a very similar example in Judges 19, verse 1 through 3. We have this example of this priest, this Levite, who takes a concubine as a wife. And then in verse 2, it says, But his concubine played the harlot against him, And she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judea and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went to speak to her tenderly uh, to her to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So here we have uh, a wife leaving. It says, but it says, played the harlot against him. Uh, This word in the Hebrew is very similar to the Greek porneia, and it could mean sexual sins, but it's also used figuratively for idolatry or unfaithfulness. And the lexicon, uh, the, the Greek translation, translates play the harlot to depart from. And that would make sense. He go, she goes to the father's house. She's not out prostituting herself. Okay? And so I believe that this falls into this realm of porneia that this concubine uh, left and deserted. Right? If she went to go play the harlot in adultery, it would actually prohibit that person, the priest, from going back to her. Why? Because there's another law in the Old Testament in Leviticus 21 that prohibits priests from marrying adulterers or uh, prostitution, prostitutes. Their priests are prohibited from marrying prostitutes. So here we have a priest, marries a concubine. Concubine leaves. Okay? The word translated could be play the harlot, but again, then it wouldn't be legal for him to go after her, okay? But the Greek translates the Old Testament to simply departs, leaves, okay? I know we're getting technical, but I want to make the point that porneia can also include desertion or one leaving their marital duties and deserting their spouse, so we must conclude that Jesus' usage of porneia in Matthew 5 includes desertion. The second marital obligation within the covenant is cleaving. So the first is leave, right? We're to leave and cleave. Cleaving, or your version might say, be joined with his wife, right? Now this has an immediate uh, connotation of a sexual joining, but it's also much broader than that. It's not just sexual. The Greek word here uh, in Matthew 19 is kaleo, which means an act of gluing together, to be closely associated with another in an intimate, caring relationship. 
Okay? That's a marital covenant. That's part of the marital covenant to leave and to be joined together. Kaleo, to be glued together. This word carries the idea of close intimacy where the two parties are looking after each other's best interest. They're caring for one another. And this is all throughout the New Testament, is it not? 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So when you're joined together with your spouse, Husbands are to care for them physically, uh, providentially, uh, emotionally. This stands over and against a spouse who would continually seek to inflict pain upon them through abuse. This stands over against husbands who do not provide physical needs for their wives. And Paul, as I read in 1 Timothy 5.8, says that husbands who do not care for their own household, including their wife, they don't, they don't care for their wife and the things necessary for life, which includes protecting them from physical harm. It says they are worse than an infidel. Paul says for, for somehow, some way, these despicable men and women, because there is, it does happen on the other side, But these despicable spouses who treat their wives in a way, they are in worse condition than an unbeliever damned to hell. It gives the idea that these despicable people have greater condemnation because they did not care for those in their own households. Husbands are to love their wives as they would love their own bodies. Ephesians 5.28 Just as husbands would not seek to physically harm their own body, they have strict commands not to do so to their wives. And as a result, the husband, in the case of abuse, has violated his marriage covenant and grants the right for divorce. He has refused to cleave to his wife, to be joined to his wife, to nourish her and to protect her. And not to mention, friends, that the sixth commandment, remember I've taught through the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. And the overarching principle for thou shalt not kill is to preserve life. There's a positive command to preserve life. So a spouse suffering under the tyranny of physical abuse uh, is obligated to take action to preserve their own life. So therefore, a spouse who is actively and willingly seeking harm upon their spouse is breaking their covenantal duties, and this too would fall under Jesus' usage of porneia. The third thing is being one flesh. So uh, the covenantal duty is to leave father and mother, to, be, to uh, cleave to their wife, and then it says be one flesh. And this has a direct, uh, is a direct, uh, pointing directly to sexual intercourse. Being one flesh, Paul uses the same terminology in 1 Corinthians 6.6 6 to speak about uh, sexual intercourse, okay? So we're to leave, we're to cleave, and the two shall become one flesh. This 
again, is about sexual relations. And even when they have kids, it's a symbol of them becoming one. Husbands and wives have a conjugal obligation to their spouse. They have a conjugal obligation to their spouse. When one violates this right through depriving their spouse of sexual relations or by committing indecent sexual acts outside the marriage bed, this is a violation of the marriage covenant. And Paul speaks to this directly in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 1 through 5. He says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, he says, stop depriving one another. This is specifically on the conjugal rights within a marriage, uh, sexual relations. He says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Part of marriage is to protect against sexual immorality, as Paul says in the text. Because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his wife. That's part of the reason for marriage. When a husband or a wife deprives their spouse of this conjugal duty, it could cause their spouse to stumble. Look at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 7. This is a duty here not to be Ignored, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. Husbands, your body is not your own, but your wives. Wives, your body is not your own, but your husband's. Paul says, stop depriving one another, except by agreement. And that word depriving means to defraud. You're actually, you possibly even sinning against your spouse by defrauding them, depriving them of their conjugal rights as a spouse you know there's a text uh it's not in my notes but there's a text believe in the book of judges um where now it's going to twist me all up uh, where a man uh, takes a female slave to be his wife and it says that if the man doesn't give that wife conjugal rights then she okay as a female slave a bond servant has the right to actually divorce the husband because he hasn't given her her conjugal rights. So you can argue from the lesser to the greater, okay, uh, in that regards. But uh, So conjugal rights are part of the marriage covenant. Abstinence within a marriage, friends, is not normal and, in fact, can be sinful. Can. Now, now, on the other end, we're also to be sensitive to our spouses as well. So this is not a free uh, warrant for spouses, okay? But if you get the point here is that your body is not your own if you're married, okay? Your body belongs to your spouse. So don't deprive each other of your conjugal uh, marital needs. And also, of course, sexual immorality would also bring cause to break this marriage covenant, 
Pernea, as I mentioned, can mean all types of sexual sins. It can include adultery, but it can also include other things, not just sexual intercourse outside of marriage. If a spouse is continually um, partaking in sexual sins outside of marriage that don't amount to what adultery is in the sexual intercourse, but is uh, doing other things with other people or pornographic sex, or you can name the whole list of sexual sins that don't involve sexual intercourse. If a spouse is doing these things, he or she has violated the marriage covenant and gives grounds for divorce. So friends, I say all that to say this. Just because God grants grounds for divorce, it does not mean that two Christians should get a divorce. Okay? In Deuteronomy 24, Jesus in Matthew 5 upholds the original intent of Deuteronomy 24 by correcting the oral traditions which focused on the process and the procedures for divorce and not the sanctity of marriage. Now, there are probably dozens of scenarios with divorce, with one spouse leaving another, one spouse adultery, one not, desertion, uh, remarriage, second marriage, third marriage. You know, we don't have time to exhaust all the scenarios and what will constitute the permissibility or prohibition of these things. Uh, but within the confines of, of where we are with this text, uh, what you need to focus on, what I believe the Lord is using this text for, is for you to focus on where you are right now, okay? Where has God put you right now? If you're in a covenanted marriage, okay, don't focus so much on the intricacies of divorce. Focus more on the beauty and the sanctity of marriage. Focus more on fulfilling your covenantal duties so your spouse never has the option, so your spouse never has grounds for divorce. Focus on fulfilling your covenantal duties and stop focusing like the Pharisees did so much on when and where and how I would be able to uh, get a divorce. Maybe you've been through a divorce, okay? Focus on where God has you now, okay? Focus on where he is now. Now, there are texts that talk about, like 1 Corinthians 7, that he says a woman should not leave her husband, but if she does, she is to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So there are instructions for those who are find themselves in a divorce situation, whether the divorce happened in Christ or outside of Christ. The creation ordinance is for all of mankind, not just for Christians. Divorce is a is divorce unless a divorce outside of unchastity is a sin for all of mankind, not just Christians. So I believe what Jesus is trying to do by correcting the rabbinic tradition is to get them to stop focusing so much on the process and procedures for divorce and get them to focus on the sanctity of the marriage covenant uh, enacted at creation. And that's my encouragement to you. You know, just as Jesus uh, has a bride, just as we are married to Christ, those of us that are in Christ, we ought to focus on keeping our covenantal duties as a Christian to Christ and those of us that are married to our spouse. Uh, Amen. And we just need to think about, the last thing I'll say is this. We need to think about, I touched on this earlier, but we need to think about how Jesus treats the bride of Christ. 
We need to think about the beauty of the marriage between Jesus and his bride. How, how Jesus changed your heart when you were an enemy to God. He changed your heart and drew you to him so that you would be part of the covenantal family of God. Not on anything you've done or can do, but God did it out of his own free grace, and now you're in this covenantal marriage. And let's have that view of marriage when we take it into our homes. And let's treat our spouse as Christ treats the church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord. Thank you so much for your work, Lord, your life, your death. Thank you, Father, for the beauty and the sanctity of marriage. Thank you, God, that you will never leave us, those of us in Christ, nor forsake us. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to to take our minds, those of us that are in Christian marriages, to take our minds, Lord, uh, off of even the idea of divorce and and focus on fulfilling our covenantal duties. And Lord, we know that divorce happens because we live in a fallen world. But God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to uh, seek the word of God so that we could fully understand, uh, Lord, the beauty of marriage. And God, when the situation arises, God, for those who have either faced divorce or been divorced or have loved ones that are being divorced or divorcing, God, help us to care very diligently with the Word of God, Father, to speak truth to others. Help us to not take this topic lightly, God. Uh, But God, help us to focus our eyes on Christ in this matter, our great and high priest. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.